you're a visitor with us today, um, first of all, we're very honored that you're here, and just know this is a little different Sunday. Um, however, if you're visiting with an eye towards becoming a part of Northway, you picked a great Sunday to be here because we're talking about the future and where we believe that God is leading us. And so to set some context for what we will talk about today, I'd like to use the book of Nehemiah. <clears throat> so if you've got a Bible with you and you want to turn there, Nehemiah is in your Old Testament. It's before the Psalms. It's in between Ezra and Esther. Uh, you'll find the little book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is basically the journal uh, of a man named Nehemiah who lived about 2,500 years ago, about 450 years before Christ, um, in a land that is currently ruled by Iran and Iraq. Um, why was he there? We well, have to go back to 587 BC. In 587 BC, the Babylonians invaded Israel, they invaded Jerusalem, they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, they leveled the city, and they carried off most of the citizens of Jerusalem back to Babylon. Um, the citizens stayed there, and then eventually the Persians came in, and the Persians um, just uh, overtook the uh, Babylonians, and when they came in, they sent a lot of the Jews back to Jerusalem, but a portion stayed. Nehemiah was one of those who stayed in what was then called Persia. Nehemiah served a king named Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was, was the son of Xerxes. So if you've ever seen the movie 300, about the 300 Spartan soldiers who battle the Persians so bravely and hold out for so long against much bigger forces, the Persian king in that movie is Xerxes. This is the son of that king, Artaxerxes. Nehemiah served at the winter palace of Artaxerxes in a place called Susa. His job was to be the cupbearer for the king. The cupbearer was a guy who tasted the wine of the king before it was given to the king. Not to determine if it was a good wine, if it was a good year, if it was a, you know, a fine Merlot to give to the king. He tasted it to see whether or not it was poisoned. Because in that day, there were all these assassination attempts made against kings and other leaders. And so his job was to drink the wine. And if he lived, then they would give it to the king and say, okay, it's fine. It's not poison. You can drink it. And it was actually a pretty cushy job if you lived. Uh, if you got to the end of your work day and somebody said, how, how was your day? How did your job go today? As long as you were able to answer that question, it's a pretty good day. Uh, he was part of the inner circle of the king. He was by the king's side. He was sort of an, an informal advisor to the king. He had all the comforts of the palace. He, he lived better than most of the people around him. He had a nice safe, comfortable life. Then God rocked his world. So if you've got a Bible, Nehemiah chapter 1, here is how Nehemiah began his journal. Verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. So in the month of Kislev of the 20th year. This was the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. This was about 445 B.C. 
So in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, that was the winter palace of Artaxerxes, the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So most scholars believe that Hanani was the literal brother of Jeremiah, not just a Jewish brother, a friend who came. And so his brother comes from Jerusalem to visit Hanani in, I mean, to visit Nehemiah in Susa. And he comes there and, and Nehemiah wants to know about the events in Jerusalem. I mean, sure, he wants to visit with his brother and catch up on his life, but this is a, this is a time before newspapers and television and the internet So he wants the latest news. Tell me what's happening in Jerusalem. Tell me about the situation there. Tell me about the city. Tell me about the people. Give me all the news of what's happening in my ancestral homeland. Here was his reply. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah asked his brother, tell me about the situation. Tell me about Jerusalem. And Hananiah says, it's it's not good. The people there, they're in trouble. The city's in disgrace. Why is it in disgrace? The wall is broken down. The gates have been burned. The city is pretty much in ruins. And Nehemiah weeps. Not just a tear going down his cheek, but he weeps. He mourns for days over hearing this news. Why does Nehemiah mourn over hearing that the walls are destroyed and the gates have been burned? Why does he weep over this? Because in the ancient world, a city had to have walls and gates. Otherwise, it was a sitting duck for any army that wanted to come in and invade. Any bandits from the countryside who wanted to come in and cause destruction could without walls. Most ancient cities were built on hills so they could have a height advantage over any invading army. And they always, always had walls. That was how you defended the city. That's how you kept order in the city. You had to have walls. And Nehemiah hears that there are no walls, that they've been destroyed, that the gates are burned. And he hears this news and he weeps over his ancestral city. He mourns for days. Now, here's something that's a little bit odd. He hears this news around 445 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed, the walls were destroyed, the gates were burned in 587 B.C. This was old news. This was like me coming into you this morning and saying, hey, I've got some tragic news I need to share with you. President Lincoln's been shot by an assassin. He is now dead. I'm sorry to share that with you, but that's just reality. President Lincoln's dead. And it's like me sharing that with you and then you becoming so overwhelmed with emotion over hearing that that you leave the service, you skip lunch, you go home, you stay in bed all day, you weep for days over that news. Now the assassination of President Lincoln was certainly a tragic event. That was certainly a very sad time, but it's been 160 years. Most of us emotionally have moved past this fact. You're not going to weep over that. Why is it that Nehemiah hears this news that's 140 years old, and he's broken up over it. He weeps over this. 
It's because Nehemiah at this point had hoped, had thought that perhaps the walls had been rebuilt. He knew they had been destroyed. He knew the gates had been burned. That was old news. But many Jews had traveled back to Jerusalem and he had hoped that someone had rebuilt the walls. The citizens had been led by somebody to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But his brother comes and says, nope, hasn't happened. The city is still in disgrace. The walls are still down. Those burned gates are still just as burned and laying on the side side of the city limits. Nothing has happened. And this tears Nehemiah up. He understood that Jerusalem could not be the city that it was meant to be without walls. So he mourns, he fasts, he does not eat, he prays before the God of heaven. And then skip over to chapter 2. Here's what we read. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So again, same year, but it's four months later. Nisan was four months after Kislev. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So, Chapter 1 ends, and Nehemiah says, I mourned, and I fasted, and I prayed. And chapter 2 opens with, in the month of Nisan, meaning it was four months later. Meaning, he did not pray just for a couple of days. He did not pray for a week. He spent four months praying to God. He spent four months fasting on and off. He spent four months weeping. He spent four months crying out to the Lord because of what he was going to do next. And what was that? He took wine to the king. That was his job. He was a cupbearer. He took wine to the king, and he says, I had not been sad in his presence before, meaning I was going in to take wine to the king, and I was sad in the presence of the king. Why had he not done that before? Because you did not go into the king's presence with a sad face. If you serve the king, you did not go into the presence of the king with a sad face. If you had problems at home, you checked those problems at the door before you went in to serve the king. If you and your wife were in a fight, you did not mention that to the king. If your kids had yelled at you that morning, you did not mention that to the king. If something about your day was not going well, you did not mention that to the king. You did not bring a melancholy attitude into the king's presence and burden him with your problems. Yet Nehemiah goes into the presence of the king sad. Here's what happens next. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Okay, so Nehemiah does um, what, uh, the king does what Nehemiah hoped he would do. Nehemiah goes in with a sad face and the king says, you're not sick. Why do you have a sad face? I was very much afraid. Yes, very much afraid. If you were sad in front of the king, he could throw you in jail. He could order your death. If you displeased him in any way, you know, life could take, take a downturn for you very much. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So king, hey, I'm sad in your presence and I'm going to dump 
my problem on you. It's the fact that my ancestral home is in ruins. The walls are down. The gates have been burned with fire. Here's what's making me sad. Now, why was the city uh, in ruins? Why had it not been rebuilt? Why were the walls still in ruins? Why had the gates not been reconstructed? Because the king had ordered that it not be rebuilt. This very king had said, do not rebuild the walls. Do not put the gates up because any city with walls is able to defend itself. It is able to gather an army. It is able to rebel against the kingdom that now has power over this particular city. So King Artaxerxes said, no more rebuilding of the city. Nehemiah comes in with a sad face. Why are you sad? I'm sad because the city has not been rebuilt. The city that you said they can't rebuild the walls, that is making me sad. The king said to me, what is it that you want? What is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. So that I can go back and rebuild the walls of the city where you said the walls are not supposed to be rebuilt. Can't you imagine all the other servants of the king, his entourage? They're in the room, in this throne room. They're standing around the walls and they see this interaction and they hear what Nehemiah says to the king and they just shake their heads. Oh, buddy. Nice knowing you, Nehemiah. (laughs) Uh, You've just signed your death warrant. Man, what a foolish, foolish thing to say in front of the king. You know, can I have your stuff when you're gone? You've just asked the king to go back and rebuild the walls in a place where the king said the walls should not be rebuilt. So Nehemiah prays to the God of heaven. He's been praying for four months. He prays. He throws out this question to the king. And then here's how the king responded. Then the king With the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Now, logically speaking, rationally speaking, there is no way the king should have allowed this. In fact, King Artaxerxes should have said, First of all, you're not supposed to be sad in my presence, so throw him out of here. Secondly, you're asking to go and to rebuild the walls of a city that could rebel against me, walls that I have ordered to not be rebuilt. That's it, put him to death. Throw him out of here and put him to death. But here is what Nehemiah understood he had spent four months seeking the Lord, four months fasting. And praying, and he understood that God had led him to this point. And if God had led him to do this, then God was going to provide for Nehemiah. And that's exactly what happens here. King Artaxerxes, at this point, the most powerful man in the world, a man who had no concern about the king. Uh, about the God of the Jews, who had no concern for Jerusalem, who had no concern for anything that had to do with Israel, who had zero concern about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. This, this king, this king's heart was in the Lord's hands. And the, and the Lord of heaven was guiding this king who had no interest in God, was guiding him in his answer. So the king says, you can go. You can go back. So at this point, you would think Nehemiah would just say, hey, thank you so much. 
slowly kind of back out of the room, silently pray to God, thank you that I still have breath in my lungs, you know, and then just get out of there as quickly as possible. (laughs) But Nehemiah figures he's on a roll, so let's just keep going. See what else I can get. Verse 7. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And so king... um, not only can I take time off from my job, so you got to get someone else to replace me. Not only can I have an extended leave of absence, um, not only can I go back and rebuild the walls of the city where you had ordered the walls to not be rebuilt, but, you know, I know you're busy, but can you write some letters to all the governors of the region where I've got to travel through to get to Jerusalem so that I can have safe passage? Essentially, would you say, hey, it's okay for me to be traveling through here to go and rebuild the walls. Doesn't make sense, does it? Why would Nehemiah think that this was okay? Because God had led him and he knew that God would provide. Now at this point you think, okay, that's enough. Nehemiah, don't ask for anything else. But Nehemiah decides, I'm just going to swing for the fences. Why not? So here's the last request he makes. And may I have a a letter to Asaph keeper of the royal park, which means this is the park of the king, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. So here, king, can I have time off to go and rebuild the walls that you didn't want rebuilt? Can you throw in some letters so I can have safe passage? And by the way, can you provide the lumber to rebuild the walls and the gates? And while we're at it, my house as well. The residence where I will live. Can you provide the two by four as necessary to make this project happen? And here's what Nehemiah says in his journal. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, The king granted my request. Nehemiah knew that God was leading him to do this and that God's hand was all over this. So much so that not only does the king say, sure, you can have time off. Sure, you can go and rebuild the city walls. Sure, I will give you letters to go and to rebuild those walls. And I will provide the lumber to rebuild the walls. Not only does he do all of that, The king actually provides an armed escort for Nehemiah as well. Verse 9, so I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Nehemiah, you can go, you can rebuild the walls. Here are letters for safe passage. Here you can have the lumber to do it. And just in case somebody tries to bother you, here is a battalion of soldiers to escort you all the way back to Jerusalem. Now, the rest of Nehemiah is his journal about how the walls actually got rebuilt. All along the way, he faced opposition. Uh, There was discouragement. There was apathy among the people who lived there. There was internal opposition, external opposition. I mean, all along the way, people tried to stop Nehemiah from rebuilding the walls, but he continued and continued and continued, and amazingly, in 52 days, they completed the project. In 52 days, the walls were up, 
and the gates were up, and Jerusalem was once again the city that God had intended Jerusalem to be. So what do we take from this? There are several things that apply very specifically to us. This is on your message map. Reaching our city requires, number one, a brokenness for the lost. Understand this. When you read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was not upset that the walls were down only because he wanted the city to have beautiful walls. He did not go back and rebuild so that he could look at the walls and go, oh, aren't those incredible walls? The reason that he was upset was that a city without walls was not a thriving city. And God established Jerusalem in that place to be a light to the nations. Uh, In between the nations to the west, Egypt, and the nations to the east, Babylon, later the Medes, later the Persians, there was all this trading that took place. And people traveled through Jerusalem. And God established Jerusalem in that place because it was... It was on the um, ancient Route 66. And there were many people from all these other nations who got to hear about the God of Israel as they traveled through Jerusalem. And when you read the Old Testament, you'll see kings and queens of these other nations who become worshipers of God because of the witness there in Jerusalem. Without walls, without gates, it could not be that. Nehemiah was not interested in just making a beautiful city. Nehemiah wanted to see a city that was once again able to be a shining light on a hill. That is the same thing that God has called us to do. I remember about a decade ago, I I did a funeral here for a church member. The funeral was here, uh, the funeral service was here in our church, and then the graveside was on the other side of town. And so I rode with... um, rode with one of the funeral directors to the graveside and we finished the graveside service and that funeral director said hey do you mean to take you back to your car at Northway I said yeah that'd be great you know if we give me a lift I'd appreciate it and so we went out to the parking lot and he said by the way we're driving the hearse back I said well that's that's interesting and so we got in the hearse and driving down I-475 at 70 miles an hour you will get some looks uh, going that fast in a hearse Um, and so I began to talk to this this guy who was about my age, tell me how you got into this business, tell me how it's going, just you know, tell me about, about what you do in your job. And one of the things that he said in that conversation was, I am amazed at how many people who live in our community have no connection with the church. I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, someone will die, their father dies, or mom dies, a brother or sister dies, and they will come in, and they will make the funeral arrangements, and they will say, we would like to have a service, but we need a minister, and we have no connection with the church. And I said, wait a second, you've got, you've got to explain this to me, because I, I grew up in the South, and in the South, everybody has a church connection, even if they never go there's some kind of connection with the church. I mean, it might only be Easter and Christmas they actually show up, but, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, but that's my church or that's my church. He said, no, they they don't even have a loose connection with the church because they will ask us, can you provide the names of some clergy members who can come and do this funeral service? And, And so I asked him, I said, well, just give me an estimate. How many people come in and ask you that question? He said, it's about half. About half have no connection at all. Now, that was 10 years ago. I would guess that's just as much true, if not more true, today. 
We live in a community where there is lostness all around us, where people do not have the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, where they do not know the gospel, where they do not have this sense of purpose and a knowledge of eternal life that waits. It is all around us, and it should break our hearts. A new building, any kind of additional construction is not done for the sake of a building. Now, having a beautiful building, it is done because there is brokenness and lostness all around us. Here's the second thing we see in this passage. Reaching our city requires seeking the Lord. That is what you see in this passage so clearly. Nehemiah doesn't say, okay, the walls are down, the gates have been burned, I need to, I need to hop to it. i got to get to Jerusalem fast, and I've got to begin rebuilding these walls. Nehemiah immediately goes to his knees and he begins to seek the Lord. What would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? I need your direction. I need you to give me a path forward to be able to fix this situation. There's this brokenness over it. Now, God, I need you to show me what to do. 2018, we... we opened our new student center and Cathedral Coffee and our expanded foyer. And immediately afterwards, we began to have space issues here in the church. And so I began to have meetings with certain leaders, and we would sit in those meetings, and we would say, what, what are we supposed to do? Lord, show us what we're supposed to do. And sometimes at the beginning of the meeting, we would pray. Sometimes we would stop in the middle, and we would pray. Sometimes at the end of the meeting, and we would say, God, We need to know what we're supposed to do. And we never could get a sense of move forward, move forward. We just paused everything. We just did not have an answer from the Lord. And now I know why. Because then, March of 2020, COVID hit. And we had no more space issues. In fact, you weren't here at all for several months. Nobody was. We had plenty of room in here. It was just me and a camera. That was it. For a while, you were all watching online. And then we opened up slowly, and people began to return. A few more began to return. And then, after a period of time, we began to have space issues again. We began, especially in peak seasons of our year, this room was too crowded, parking lot was too crowded, our children's area, preschool area, everything was too crowded. And we began to seek the Lord again. What would you have us to do? What would you have us to do? Show us what our next steps need to be. Then finally, here's the last thing. Brokenness for the law, seeking the Lord. And the last thing is a willingness to sacrifice. So Nehemiah says to God, my heart breaks over the city of Jerusalem. Then he spends time seeking the Lord. What would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? Tell me what to do. And what God tells him to do was a big risk. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go before the king and I want you to appear sad in his presence. And I want you to ask him to give you time off. And I want you to ask him if he will give you letters for safe passage. And I want you to ask him if he would provide the lumber for you to rebuild the walls. All of that was at a risk personally of his own life. The second, uh, first thing is a brokenness over the law. Second thing is seeking the Lord. The third thing is it requires a willingness to sacrifice. For us to look around and say, well, nobody's going to church anymore. The next generation doesn't care about the Lord. For us to sit there and say that and just shake our heads and not do anything about it is not what God would have us to do. There has to be a willingness to sacrifice. Now, here's the good news for all of you this morning. I am not going to ask, and I do not believe the Lord is asking any of us, to go before a king at a risk of our lives 
to reach our city. But I am going to ask you to make a sacrifice. So here's where we are and and what we believe the Lord is leading us to do. Um, And uh, when I get to the end of this, I'm going to tell you about next steps. And I will tell you, we've got a brochure this morning that we're going to uh, hand out to you as you leave the worship center. Uh, We did not give these out ahead of time because you would not listen to me. You would just thumb through the booklet the whole time. Some of you may have gotten an advanced copy from someone who left after the first service. Um, So keep that to yourself for now. But as you leave, you'll get one of these and it will give you every detail that we have so far. In fact, I met with a group of deacons this morning and I told them, I do not think that that I have any knowledge that is not in this. I think everything I know, everything our leadership knows is contained in this booklet. So where we are right now, you will have all of that information. I'm going to give you a high-level view and then tell you what I'm asking you to do. So this is the master plan that we have developed uh, for, uh, in conjunction with a firm that does this. It's a design-build firm um, with an architect and others at that firm. Uh, To give you an idea, we are here at number two right now. This is our uh, current worship center. Uh, The main part of this new addition in our master plan is a new worship center. That's here. That's number one. Uh, It will seat almost 1,100. The current worship center where we are right now uh, will be a a banquet room. Uh, Our common space will be increased dramatically. So one of the things I've noticed as I stand out in the foyer after church is that is that as people leave, if you try to stop and have a conversation with someone, then the room sort of gets backed up and you can't get around people. And if two people talk and they pull in a few more and a few more, everything gets very crowded very quickly. So our common space will be increased. Um, We will add um, actually a couple of kitchens, one for cathedral coffee and one to serve this banquet room. That's number four. Number five is our children's space. They will have an increased... um, space, what is, what is currently our A hallway, uh, will become children's space. Our children's check-in will be a lot better. Preschool, the same way. They'll get a little more space, a much better check-in. Uh, as well, we'll add some adult classrooms um, in several different locations. Um, we will add uh, student space um, in the form of classrooms uh, around the exterior of the current student space. Number nine, uh, which is the red square at the uh, top of our property, um, that is a chapel that we would like to construct. Um, If you leave from here and you drive in between Northway and Walmart, that is called Plantation Parkway, and you drive um, going away from Chick-fil-A towards Baptist Village, Uh, At the very top of that is our property line. So Baptist Village and our property butt together. And if you drive up there, you will notice that that is the highest point in this area. In fact, drive up there at some point. You can stop right there. Uh, I'd love for you to stop and pray for our church. Um, Just make sure you pray with your eyes open in case traffic's coming in either direction. But when when you get to that point, you can look and see for miles and miles. What we would like to construct is some sort of prayer chapel that goes at the highest point of our property with a steeple on top with a big spotlight on the steeple. So if you can see from that point for miles, that means that people can see for miles uh, our property. So if they're coming off 475, really from many points in Macon, um, that would be very visible. 
Uh, as well, there's a parking lot uh, that will be constructed up there on that area. A sports field, a, a very large sports field um, that will be on the other side of that parking lot. Uh, number 10 is office area, so our current office space is just not adequate. It was never designed um, to, to be um, adequate for a full staff, and so there'll be new office space as well. So that is the overall master plan. Again, this is very much detailed in the booklet. Uh, this is phase one, what we anticipate phase one to be, which is basically the new worship center, new office space, this room uh, transformed into a... Uh, a banquet room, the new kitchens, the new common space, the children's space and preschool space all being um, added to and improved. This is a rendering of the exterior of the building. Uh, so this is the front entrance over here around the Cathedral Coffee, and it will just continue. If you look at that and you say, well, that looks just like our current building, that's good. <laughs> that is our intention. So what we have now would just continue around. This is another shot of the exterior, a rendering of the exterior of the building. So this is if you're driving in the driveway from Walmart. Um, that would be the, uh, the view that you would see. This is uh, the preschool drop-off area. Uh, again, you'll see this in the booklet, but it will be rerouted and improved, we believe, um, both for our weekday preschool and our Sunday morning preschool. Again, a lot more information in the book. Here's the number one question that you have on your mind right now. When will we do this? I do not know. If you can tell me what the economy will be doing a year from now, if you can tell me what interest rates will be a year from now, if you can tell me where the Dow will be a year from now, I can give you a better idea of when we're going to do this. Of course, if you can do all of those things, I would say you need to go into business as a financial advisor. You will make bukoodles of money doing that. We don't know. What we've done so far is to develop a master plan that does not cost much money. Uh, for us to do this, we work in conjunction with this company. It is not a major expense. The next expense for us is a big expense, and that is doing the design documents. That's where the architect and all the engineers, civil engineers, mechanical engineers, all get involved, and that is, that is a big expense. We will not take that step until we feel like we can do it without it hindering the ministries or missions of this church in the future. And so that is a, uh, something that we're constantly praying about. What is the right time? When we believe, when our lead ministry team believes it's the right time, we will come back to you, the church, and say, here is our proposal, and then you will vote on that going forward. Um, when exactly that will be, we do not know. But we do know what our next step is. Our next step at this point is to eliminate the debt that we have from our last construction project. The details of that are in the booklet. Uh, what I would personally love to see is that if we, in the next 14 months, can wipe out this debt, then July of, of next year, we will celebrate the 25th anniversary of the church being in this location. I would love to celebrate that 25th anniversary with a note burning. It's a big ask. But it's something that can definitely be done. And if we are able to do that, it will position us very well for whatever it is that God has next. Now, if you've got more questions, we are uh, doing a business meeting at 5 o'clock today. Uh, the purpose of the business meeting is just to, to answer questions. There's really nothing uh, at this business meeting that we need to vote on yet. But we will answer any questions that you have. So if you want more details, come to that meeting at 5 o'clock. 
here's why I'm presenting this this morning. For all of this to happen, we need everyone to participate financially. We need everyone to give. Some will give more, and some of you can look at this past year and you can say, Lord, you've been very good to me. You have blessed me financially, and you will be able to give more. Some may not be able to give as much, but we can all give something. And my goal is that 100% of us would, would participate in some way. And if we do that, I am absolutely convinced that this will become reality sooner rather than later.